This is How to Read. Brief Conversations with Brilliant Minds. How to Read is a series of brief conversations with literary scholars. I'm Milan, and in each episode, I sit down for a cup of tea with a different scholar, and we talk through their current research. Thanks for joining us. Sometimes it pays to zoom in. Today we focus on some opening sentences which reward close attention. Our guest is Jenny Davidson, an English professor who's also a novelist herself. She shows us how these carefully crafted opening sentences can orient, intrigue, or even mislead us. Jenny Davidson, welcome. Thank you. So we're going to talk about first sentences. And before we get to some specific examples, I was hoping we could sort of put ourselves in the headspace of someone coming to the first sentence in a book. So what are the most important things that you bring to that first sentence? I think the first sentence of a novel especially really has to work as a sort of an invitation. It's a point of entry in a metaphorical sense. And in fact, a large number of openings of novels do frame that entry for you in an even more intense way by having you either looking through a window, uh, looking with a distant perspective on something. I've actually, mm. I think I do have an instance here in my pile okay. uh, that gives us that sort of a feel. This is Elizabeth Gaskell's novel, Mary Barton, and this is the first sentence. There are some fields near Manchester, well known to the inhabitants as Green Haze Fields, through which runs a public footpath to a little village about two miles distant. Hmm. So you can hear there that it's a very vividly rendered physical place that we, you know, 150 years later, can actually feel as if we're following along, not just on a map, but perhaps also, you know, as a camera might follow a person walking along that path. Because you sort of start with the wide view of fields and then you zoom into a path. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of, yeah, sense of of entry into that space. It kind of gives us a little bit of time to adjust to our point of view and Mm -hmm. then home in on the detail. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm curious that you started off calling this uh, an invitation because that kind of sentence on the face of it seems quite neutral and and kind of, you know, just describing a, a landscape. But should we actually understand that to be a more kind of inviting thing? Well, I certainly feel it to be, as I as I was looking at it, I thought there's something quite familiar about this town. It has a sort of um, ordinary, humble choice of words. This place is very familiar to the narrator, and we are familiarized with it mm. just by that humility and ordinariness of the word choice. And, and from what you've been saying about the kind of humility of, of this particular opening description it sounds like the personality of the narrator or the novelist that's also something that you don't necessarily know when you start reading the novel I guess in the back of my mind here is um, a piece of yours that I read that was talking about the first sentence of Emma Um, could we talk about that and how the kind of the main character and the narrator coincide there yeah and let me just see if I I must have I have about 50 different editions of Austin. <laughs> that is an exaggeration. I wonder if we could find... Okay, good. Um, this is the first sentence of Jane Austen's novel, Emma. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, 
with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. So it's a, um, it's a capsule snapshot character sketch, and it's a descriptive account that doesn't strongly point the way forward in terms of either moral judgment or storytelling or what kind of a story this is going to be. And yet mm-hmm. I think there are already some hints in it. One of the lines that most strongly catches my eye is the v- verb seemed in Emma Woodhouse seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence. Mm-hmm. I think that that already sets up uh, the promise that while this may be true on the face of it, it will be a more complex or a more mixed situation once we get to the underlying issues. Again, mm. I having- like I like that because it's the sort of word that you could just gloss over, but actually, when you look at that word "seemed," you, it starts to kind of create these possibilities of irony. And we already hear that that ironic aspect of the voice of the narrator, where it's mm. already difficult to pin down exactly what the narrator means to be saying here, although it's mm. very suggestive. So, so even though it seems to be a sentence that's all about this character Emma it's also already actually just in that word seemed telling us something about the narrator I think so furthermore Emma had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her well we again we suspect there's an implicit promise here that that may change and that this will be a story that includes episodes in which Emma is distressed or vexed by what happens Mm. it would be uh, a perverse kind of a story that just told a set of incidents in the life of a character for whom things continue to go very smoothly. That mm. might be a novel of, of wish fulfillment, or, uh, <laughs> and it might be a very boring, boring. novel. Yeah, right? absolutely. So um, there's something quite dynamic about what is set into motion uh, mm. by way of this initial sentence. Mm. Should we move on? Yes, why don't we do that? Uh, the next one that I've got here in my pile, a uh, quite famous opening sentence from Virginia Woolf's novel, To the Lighthouse, mm. in quite different mode than either of the two that we've seen already. Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow, said Mrs. Ramsay. But he'll have to be up with the lark, she added. So what's striking here is that Mrs. Ramsey here is not given any identification or context. She's just named as if the reader knows already, already, right? Something like that, right? So it's a gesture that's a little bit disconcerting or maybe even estranging for the reader. And yet it is also uh, a, a very striking way of creating familiarity. Right, the word yes, that very first word right. already implies something that has gone before, yes. but that isn't in the The title book. of the novel, To the Lighthouse, uh, has already given us a key piece of information. I think oh, enough that okay. we can kind of see what the question must have been, right, and fill it in. Yes, of course, if it's fine tomorrow. And that question must have been, can we go to the lighthouse, mm. right? So it's a very economical way of putting both a literal and a figurative agenda for a journey into the mind of the reader before we've even read a page of the novel. What's the figurative side of this journey? Uh, Just the sense that if, you know, there is literally, if you've read the the novel, you know this, there is a lighthouse that this family who are um, in the remote part of Scotland Mm. are planning to take a trip to. But there's a hint already that will be in the mind of a reader that if you have a title, 
that gestures to some kind of a journey that it is going to have an additional layer of meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, it will tell us something about wanting or yearning or moving towards something about the, um, the fantasy of a destination mm -hmm. uh, as much as it will tell us about a literal journey. I'm just going to test this tea to see whether it's... Oh, let's hope so. Um, oh yeah, that's looking a decent color. Delicious tea. The next example that I've got here is from W.G. Sebald's book, The Rings of Saturn. And I've said book rather than novel because he's always playing in all of his writing between historical fact and memory and the distortions of memory and okay. the ways that when, when we tell certain kinds of stories about the past, uh, it's very difficult to distinguish between uh, history and fiction in some sense. So mm. this is a favorite book of mine. <laughs> and this is the first sentence. In August 1992, when the dog days were drawing to an end, I set off to walk the county of Suffolk in the hope of dispelling the emptiness that takes hold of me whenever I have completed a long stint of work. Mm. So there are a number of interesting choices here, I think. August 1992 seems as if it's the kind of gesture that will almost journalistically anchor us in a very particular moment, right? The, um, the specificity of that date puts us in real historical time. Mm. But immediately the phrase, the dog days were drawing to an end, uh, recharacterizes time in a way that's much more poetic, backward-looking, fantastical, right? Mm. The dog days, yes, I suppose we do still uh, know that that's associated with with August and it's the dog star in the sky and so forth, right? That, but it's but that's, but that's but it's useful. taking us into a sort of a almost a mythological register, certainly a register of language that is not journalistic. In mm. a newspaper article, you would not describe the time that the story is set in as being when the dog days were drawing to an end. So sure. we've already got two quite contrary gestures, so gracefully and subtly thrown out yeah. uh, just in that open sentence and then we get the pronoun I coming in right mm. I set off to walk the county of Suffolk so mm. quite matter-of-fact really Suffolk a pretty ordinary place a real place that a reader might have been to yeah. uh, and then again that gesture of sort of reversal where what sounded quite matter-of-fact is followed or capped or reversed by a gesture that moves into much more metaphysical territory in the hope of dispelling the emptiness mm. that takes hold of me whenever I've completed a long stint of work. Mm. And so the interesting thing I find about that last bit is that it's really not an inclusive gesture. What was that long stint of work? Mm. Um, we're not told that. We're not given enough information in the title of the book to fill it in as mm. we might fill in, you know, with Wolf's novel to the lighthouse mm. uh, that, that we can extrapolate a question. Here, there is a good deal that is left unknown. So uh, part of the interest here, I think, for the reader, we may be intrigued, we may be frustrated, but there's a strong sense of privacy that this narrator has, of withholding mm. that we need to be ready to grapple with. Mm. So, I mean, this is an opening sentence that isn't obviously an invitation and more like a kind of mystery or being tantalizing, but that being a different strategy for, for yes, drawing people in. I think so. Mm. So I wanted to kind of get a little bit of 
historical context in here when we were discussing this. So Jess, producer, um, mentioned that we were talking about final sentences and how apparently final sentences haven't always had the kind of importance that I think we we give them today. You know, it's the first sentence and the last sentence that we really pay attention to um, or see as having a kind of unique importance within a book. And I'm wondering about opening sentences. Have they always had the importance that they do today or is that something that's varied? Well, you know, I I read something recently about the ways that the um, fact that people are reading so many books uh, electronically by way of de- devices like the Kindle mean that we can actually get much better data than at any earlier point in the history of reading about how much of a book most readers read. And mm. I think that the truth truth of the matter is that throughout history, there have been many books that are begun but not, not finished. finished. <laughs> I think the Umberto Echo, The Name of the Rose, was the, was the famous example. So I an would, opening sentence, you know, you're pretty much guaranteed for people to read You're it. pretty much guaranteed. I, I teach a class on the 18th century British novel, and one thing that I say to students at the beginning of that class, which is frankly a little bit shocking for many of them, mm-hmm. is that for a lot of the books that we read, it is not important that you read the book in its entirety, mm. that I will certainly prefer that you would read however much of it you get through yeah. closely and well, rather than feeling that obligation. And that's because really, for the 18th century writers of fiction uh, that, that we still are reading today, a lot of them are just don't have the uh, the strongly consolidated idea of a work as a sort of aesthetic whole that we would associate with some of these formally elaborate novels of the 19th century tradition. So I'm thinking right. in particular of a novel like George Eliot's Middlemarch. Mm. Eliot conceives of the novel as a whole and as a beautifully crafted, you know, huge piece of machinery. Mm. So there we really miss one of the essential properties of the novel if we only if we read the first read, couple um, hundred pages. But a lot of the great novels of the 18th century, uh, Robinson Crusoe is maybe the simplest example for me to explain. Crusoe doesn't change over the course of the novel. He just moves throughout the world and things happen to him one after another. So as to say, like beads on a string, there's no relation Mm. between each bead. They just come one after the other. Mm. It it may be that you can almost think of it as having fractal properties, like you can read a chunk of it and it will have the same properties as the whole thing has. So you truly can get most of the important purposes without reading all the way to the end. So it sounds like, to maybe generalize too much, but the 18th century, an opening sentence doesn't necessarily tell you about the whole thing or where it's going or where it will end up. Whereas 19th century novels, the novelists were more conscious of having the beginning linked to the end and and having an overarching structure. I think so, although it might be more fair to say that in any period, writers will fall along a spectrum. Mm. Yeah. Well, Jenny Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you both for taking the time to have this conversation. That was Jenny Davidson, a professor in the English and Complet Department at Columbia University. That's it for this episode. For links to books mentioned in our discussion, plus further reading, visit our website, howtoreadpodcast.com. You can also listen to a bonus clip of Jenny Davidson discussing the first sentences of her own novels. To hear about our latest episodes and news, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at How to Read Now. How to Read is produced by me, Milan Talunin, and by me, 
Jess Engebretson. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Special thanks to Columbia University for its support, and thank you for listening.